0: Welcome to Sentient Planet. Do you hear the call?
1: Hi, I'm Susan Woodward. Today we step back a little from our stories about the southern resident orca to take a closer look at their environment, through unusual eyes. Stephen Freeland is a mapmaker at Western Washington University. In 2009, he drew the official map of the Salish Sea and surrounding basin. This map without borders became a key element in a decades-long effort to name, and bring awareness to, a whole, complex, and utterly unique ecosystem. This time, the name adoption appeal succeeded, and today, people who live along the waters of British Columbia and Washington State know they are part of the Salish Sea, thanks to campaigners and Stefan. This is a podcast for the Map Geeks, but Stefan has some wisdom for us all about the health of the Salish Sea and the lifeforms who depend upon it, as well as the responsibility we all share to protect them. So, Stefan, welcome to Sentient Planet, and thank you for joining us today.
2: Yes, my pleasure.
1: Tell me a little bit about your background and some other cartography projects that you've worked on
2: in your career. Sure. Well, my main, you know, job at Western Washington University, Huxley College of the Environment, is GIS and cartography in general to be helpful. I teach classes. I'm staff, not faculty, so it's an odd position. But part of that helpfulness is, you know, just producing maps for whoever knocks on my door. Um, so there's been a lot of maps for various little projects, you know, some faculty publication or, you know, this or that. My biggest, you know, 15 minutes of fame has been the the Salish Sea map that I did, which was under that umbrella of maps for emeritus faculty, but got kind of carried away, bigger than most.
1: So how was it that you became the cartographer or map maker for the Salish Sea map? How did that happen?
2: Well, so Burt Weber, who sort of... The, the impetus way back, and we can talk about Bert a bit more, was a faculty at, at Huxley College also. He was on this idea of getting this name uh, adopted. So Bert's a marine biologist. And, you know, people said, yeah, great idea, but it, it didn't have the, the traction. The geographic naming boards, what they really look at, which is a fascinating study in itself, what they really look at is, are people on the ground or on the water using this, this name? The people who live there are using this term, then we say that's a name. Amazingly, kind of egalitarian and fair in many cases. So, Bird had tried in the 80s and it didn't work and sort of walked away from it. And then people kept using the name, specifically some of the tribes and some of the resource managers, scientists. Those folks kind of liked it. And so, in the 2005, eight, Kind of range. Um, there was sort of this grassroots effort that Bert almost rejoined his own cause. Um, he had never really let it go, but he wasn't pushing it. So Bert came knocking at my door and uh, and said, "Gee, I sure would like to have a map that didn't have a line right through the middle of the ecosystem." You know, every map he could find has the international border. Borders are really big deals from a cartographic geographic standpoint, and so it's. Very unusual to have a map that doesn't have a border on it. And yet from his story, his purpose, that was the whole point was to transcend that line and have a a map showing just the ecosystem. In an hour or two, I could have given Bert the map he was asking for. And instead I said to him, Bert, this is a great idea. Let's make this, let me run with it. Let me come up with something that is beautiful enough, I hope, that people will want to put it on their wall." treat it essentially as a piece of propaganda, which every map is, and propaganda has a negative connotation, but every map has a purpose, an agenda going on there. And so if, if his goal was to get the word out, let me give you something that, that'll help, right? Which of course Bert loved. And he printed thousands of copies of that map and gave them out to schools and legislatures and museums and people on the street, you know, whatever he could. And it worked, I guess. <laughs>
1: Well, let's see if we can describe, or if you can describe for people what this Salish Sea ecosystem is and how you determined the border of that ecosystem. So can you give us an idea of, if we're looking at this map, what are you showing there in that ecosystem?
2: So the focus is the Salish Sea, and, and you know, that's defined, you know, we were defining that as basically the Strait of Juan de Fuca, Strait of Georgia, Puget Sound, Desolation Sound up into uh, the the mouth of Johnstone Strait. That was the extent of the map. And then we wanted to get the surrounding, you know, again, region. And that became problematic because the obvious choice there would be the watershed. I mean, you you can have a watershed for a lake because everything drains into the lake, but for a marine body, technically Japan drains into the Salish Sea. It's uphill, right? So, so, So instead we look at the watersheds of the rivers that drain directly into the Salish Sea. And so that works very nicely except for the little problem of the Fraser River. So Fraser River goes way up into northern you know, BC is huge. I think it's something like 50% of the fresh water comes into the Salish Sea is coming down the Fraser. It's a massive amount of water for a huge drainage area, which is important, of course. And from again back to map and purpose, you know, what we're trying to do is focus the map on the Salish Sea and then a little bit of the area around it. And so, if we included all of that Fraser River watershed, the Salish Sea looks small and insignificant. The map title is The Salish Sea and the Surrounding Basin. By basin, we are looking at sort of that bowl that drains directly into the Salish Sea. And we somewhat arbitrarily said, we're not going to count, we're not going to map show all of that upper Fraser River. So, that's a big debatable. Decision that we made, focusing you know, to, to get it down to a map scale that could be printed on eleven by seventeen paper and hung on the wall. Right. That then allows us to have the detail to show. You know, really, the, the map has, I think, you know, pretty much three data layers: the salt water. There's the land, the rainforesty, you know, lowland up to the alpine, up into the snow and rocks, uh, and then a freshwater. I've added creeks and lakes. So those are really the only data layers. As you pick up the map, it's, you know, the sailor Sea is obviously fills almost the page. It's the strong blue color. So it gets your attention there with a more subtler land around it. And then this basin boundary defined, which is on the map is basically I'm just adding a mask. So semi-transparent fading out of the stuff that's beyond that basin boundary. That's the vibe that we are trying to get of ecosystem.
1: So you're describing an extremely thoughtful and detailed approach. Did you kind of, when you went to work on this project, did you kind of understand out the gate that that was how you wanted to do that approach with these four layers? Or was it part of your creative process as you got into it, you started seeing more and more how you could start to get that information across to people visually?
2: Yeah, it was definitely a process. The first obvious was, well, let's just use an air photo, a satellite imagery that will capture the trees and whatever and what we found oddly is that the satellite imagery very very much tells the the human footprint is too strong of of an image even at that scale what you see is the vancouver and the victoria and the bellingham you know these footprints of seattle and olympia and even the you know the railroads and the the big power line strips and the interstates all those show up and so it, it actually diverted the attention from that, that marine e- ecosystem. It'd be great to, to create a satellite image, you know, pre Euro contact for the Salish Sea Basin, you know, to go to basically erase all those cities and put in trees and have a, an unadulterated image of what it might've looked like.
1: Have you and your colleagues, um, since the map was developed, have you done any audit of the public to see if some of your original goal, which was to make the Salish Sea more well known and that ecosystem more understood and revered, have you seen if there's been any success with that?
2: Yes. I mean, informally, anecdotally, a lot. There's been a couple of studies. The general question was, you know, people in Seattle, have you heard of the Salish Sea? Do you know what it is? And And the percentages were down in the you know 30% or something had heard of it. It was lower than I'd thought. Puget Sound is somewhat insular in Seattle, especially. And in the you know, the naming process, there was people saying, well, we should just call the whole thing the greater Puget Sound, which has a little, is a little offensive geographically. But anyway, so I think outside of Seattle, my sense anecdotally is that it's much wider adoption and, and awareness. I mean, again, the early adopters seem to be the indigenous, the tribal groups, the Coast Sailors Gathering adopted that name and that that group of people saw the power of a name and a commonality for the multiple tribes and nations and the resource managers. But the, then behind that has been the whale watching and the museums and the schools and, the you know, jumping right on board it was a whole larger group of people that just love the, the water and the islands and the, and the hiking.
1: So, well, let's break it right down. Why the word Salish? What does that word reference and why were Bert and others interested in naming that ecosystem, that word?
2: So again, Bert, he's, he's studying, you know, estuaries and concerned. I mean, this is the same within a year or two of uh, the Exxon Valdez spill which covered coincidentally the amount of oil in Exxon Valdez would pretty much fill the Sailor Sea.
0: Mm.
2: That's his mindset of, you know, we're bringing in similar boats, tanker boats into his beloved estuary. And he's challenged by the fact that we have so many different jurisdictions. You've got Canada and the United States, Washington, British Columbia, something like 60 different tribal nations affiliations counties, cities, the list just goes on and on and on, nonprofit groups, and so many sort of fingers in the pie. And even just within the U.S., you've got NOAA, you've got Fish and Wildlife, and they're all treating the same as a fragmented entity. And from his standpoint, the commonality from Olympia to you know Quadra Island was greater than the difference from U.S. to Canada. So he thought that there would be a power in a name that would tie these all together, that would unite the research, would unite, the I think, more than the research, even though the people, you know, again, the, the citizens of that basin, the people who are interacting with the marine environment, he wanted them to all feel, you know, ownership, branding, basically. So he went looking for a term, and through, I, I think, brilliance, stumbled on the Salish Sea as a term. I think that that was brilliant, possibly by luck. I mean, it's got a nice alliteration, the Salish Sea. And there have been a bunch of other ideas that were suggested before and after by him and others. Part of it was that it just rolls off the tongue nicely. It also was a very nice tip of the hat to the indigenous peoples. But even more so is that there's there's not a Salish tribe. So the term Salish is not a indigenous term. That was a, a European name applied to a language group by outside, you know, Euro anthropologists, researchers, and yet it's been adopted as a sort of umbrella. If you'd chosen, you know, the Nooksack Sea or some particular tribe, you wouldn't have gotten the same buy-in from the other tribes. But by choosing this term Salish that was obviously affiliated with the tribes, but wasn't any one tribe that had this umbrella quality to it, I don't know how much of this he's even aware of, but it was a very appropriate, you know, both tipping of the hat to the indigenous cultures that lived and live here but also agreeable to all.
1: What I'm hearing is Salish was a term that was a European term that was adopted, I guess, by early European settlers in the region. And it was a term that they would use to describe all indigenous people who were living here prior. Is that is that what you're saying?
2: Yes, and a much larger group. And of that, what we think of the sort of Salish Sea area would be the Coast Salish. So the Salish as a language group goes up into BC, way into Montana, Idaho, some of Oregon. Um, so a, a very large area of linguistically related tribes. And so out of that, you have Coast Salish. And again, as a subset of that larger Salishan, because it wasn't a particularly common term, but it clicked. And I think part of it was just pure luck that it sounded good. Salish Sea got a nice ring to it. It has this uh, you know, association with indigenous cultures without specifying one. The Coast Salish Gathering, again, they were early adopters. The second time BERT put those proposals through, it wasn't just BERT. It was BERT and the Coast Salish Gathering, a much more broader effort. It did just work. It was a good choice.
1: Well, it sounds like people liked the term, like the way it sounded, like the way that it was a kind of neutral term. Yeah. And the intent of that term being a, a unifier, right? And that people could get behind that. Let's talk about the Salish Sea itself, that ecosystem, what makes it unique? Do you know how many species it supports? Do you know some of the human history of that region?
2: Yeah, to some extent. There's, uh, I mean, the humans yeah, go back time immemorial, a long time. The, there have been a few agencies, including the, the Sea Doc Society, have done some great work, some studies on number of species. So I'm mostly sort of quoting off of their their numbers. And there's a new report coming out this spring, the State of the Salish Sea report, been done by Western and that'll have, I think, new numbers. But at 250 plus species of fish with three dozen of those classified as at-risk, 170 plus species of birds with probably 50 at risk, 35 species of marine mammals, half of them at risk. Invertebrates, we've got thousands, 3,000 species of invertebrates and they're, they're doing pretty well. And there's two species of sea turtles both of which are at risk. And you don't hear very much because they're at risk. So hundreds of different species, which makes it unique. How is the Salish Sea unique? I mean, geez, uh, it's hard for me to even it seems so obvious, you know, uh, having lived here, it's, it's, it's an amazing place. You've got hundreds of islands, depending on how you define an island, but let's say 400 plus islands. You've got glaciers that are within sight of the saltwater, hundreds of rivers, depending on how you define a river, into a fairly small contained, Estuary, so You've got this blending. You've got the the river deltas that are changing and bringing fresh water in and this ebb and flow. A relatively strong tidal influence because of where we are on the planet. So a big tidal change, flushing in and out every day, a couple times a day. And yet it gets the, the extent of the Salish Sea gets down into Olympia and up into the, the northern Gulf Islands where the flushing doesn't happen very much. And so from a scientific standpoint, you've got Places where you get a lot of tidal change, a lot of salt water, places where you get a lot of fresh water coming in, places where it's far enough into the fingers of, of the estuary where you don't get as much of an exchange or flushing. So there's just a huge range of temperatures of water and you know, living species variety and diversity and having the mountains right there up to Mount Rainier, 4,000 meters draining straight into the water, some of which is 600 meters deep in places. So it's just an amazing place, whether you're studying critters or kayaking or sailing, there's not very many places like this on the planet. So there was pushback, of course. When Bert proposes this name and he's putting it through the various channels, I mean the first pushback was people worried about changing names right like oh no this has always been the Strait of Juan de Fuca I don't want to lose that name and that was just a straight confusion because that was never the intent and so we were very careful to always say this is a this is a new term not a replacement term again looking at the map there's very little text on the map I labeled the rivers and the Strait of Juan de Fuca, Strait of Georgia, Puget Sound, Desolation Sound that was really important because we wanted to make sure right there on, you know, the map that the Salish Sea is being you know, added as a term in addition to those. So no one had to worry about, you know, I've all, it's always been to Puget Sound and, and we wanted to support that kind of emotional attachment to place, not, not undermine it.
1: Well, and again, what you're doing is you are doing something that is encompassing of all of those things and then saying here is the whole ecosystem, though, and this is the term we would like to use for that. Yeah. How was that made official?
2: The official was that Canada and the United States, Washington and British Columbia, all four have geographic naming boards, different names and configurations. But to all four of those, Bert Weber et al., but mostly Burt, did the legwork of filling out the forms and putting in the, the applications. And they asked for, you know, basically examples. And so if there was a whale watching group that called himself the Sailor Sea, or if there's a elementary school that's doing a Sailor Sea study field trip,
1: Oh, some supporting evidence of how the term's already in the common vernacular.
2: Exactly. And these naming boards have individuals, people from various, you know, they would have a, you know, a teacher and a politician and a, you know industry person representative somehow, and they would discuss it and say yay or nay. So 2009 and then the last one in 2010, the final one was approved, but all four of those government agencies said yes, and it became an official there's, of course, the naming boards. And so 2009, the Salish Sea was the name of the year for the North American whatever naming society. 2008 was Obama. So we were in good company. And 2009, the, the runner up was Twitter. So we were uh, Salish Sea. You know, there's not that many new names for places. And so it was, it was a big deal. Like Denali was a big deal. So we got press from just being a new name at all. But another, one of the pushbacks was that C was inappropriate. You can't really call it sailor sea. It's too small to be a sea. So one of my side diversions was what what is a sea? And weirdly, when you start really uncovering, unpacking, you want to waste five hours of your life. Look for a definition for what is a sea or an ocean or you know whatever. Some of them are freshwater, some of them are saltwater, some of them are inland, some of them have only one opening, some of them have multiple openings. They range from you know as small as 500 square kilometers to, you know, gigantic, you know, the North Sea kind of thing. And so what we ended up with was there certainly are seas that are smaller than the Salish Sea that are accepted. And in terms of a definition for a sea, it basically comes down to things that people call a sea. There you go again. If people call it a sea, it's a sea. It's a sea. (laughs) Um, Some seas have multiple openings because the Salish Sea has two openings. Most of the water comes through the Strait of Juan de Fuca. A, A much smaller percentage of salt water comes around the north end of Vancouver Island through Johnstone Strait. Much less impact. It's open on two sides. It still qualifies as a sea? Absolutely.
1: Yeah. And the argument that it would be too small doesn't really seem to carry any weight when you're talking about 7,000 square miles compared to other examples of 500, right?
2: So we've collected a few examples that Bert had. I made him a map of, you know, here's some well-established ancient seas from around the world. Uh, not even getting into what are the seven seas, but just the seas around the world that have you know, names that have been in, in use for a long time. So, so, at the very least, we could say there's nothing that disqualifies the Salish Sea from, you know, I, I don't know what the definition is, but you can't disqualify it by any of those fears. You
1: mentioned um, a State of the Salish Sea report that's coming out. How frequently is that done? And from your knowledge, what is the state of the Salish Sea?
2: The Georgia Bound Puget Sound Research Conference moved on to become. The ecosystem conference, and eventually now is the Salish Sea ecosystem conference, and so you know there's another adoption of that term that those resource managers saw. that easier to put on the poster, if nothing else, and that's an annual conference. And out of that presentation of research from all sorts of you know, different aspects, and I think somewhat out of outgrowth of that is the Salish Sea report that's coming out this spring. In terms of the health of the Salish Sea, you know it's there's lots of great news and great things that, you know, happiness, whether it's Victoria treating their sewage that's been dumping out or that we're removing creosote pilings. And we are getting smarter and we're doing things better. And there are seals in places that you never used to see seals. And at the same time, I think it, it looks better than ever in some ways from a visual. And below the surface, there's, there's some super big problems with salmon counts, fish counts, and with temperature and with salinity and the obvious canary in the coal mine is the orcas and the numbers don't look good and the trend doesn't look good and it looks like despite our awareness you know and all the good ideas that we're not living up to what we should be doing Um, so I think there's there's much there's a lot of bad news in that report I haven't seen it but I I imagine and and knowing what I know of especially things like the orcas that it's just Even when we see them, and I guess it feels like the awareness is greater than ever, and and it does. It looks great out there. The water looks, you know, it looks cleaner. I see less trash. I see more awareness. And yet, the bigger steps, I'm not sure that we're doing what we need to do or needed to do.
1: Yeah, that food chain is certainly a key issue, right? Just simply not having enough salmon. Going from once upon a time when we had literally millions to now a few tens of thousands annually. Yeah,
2: unimaginable how many fish were here. From from our standpoint,
1: yeah. I'm curious about the Fraser River. So a lot of the um, discussions that I've had with people on the Orca episodes I'm working on has been around the need to dismantle the four dams that are on the Lower Snake River. But the Fraser River, you mentioned, and this is just kind of an aside, Stefan. You mentioned that they potentially up to 50% of the freshwater draining into the Salish Sea is coming down that river. What's the health of that river like? And are there dams on that river? I'm very ignorant
2: to that. You know, I can't speak too much to that. It's so big and so undeveloped that I think it's better than a lot of, you know, the snake or, you know, the stateside rivers. You know, I don't think of it as being a whole lot of dams, you know, much less than the Columbia. The Columbia's bigger, but I think the Fraser's like half the size of the Columbia, a third the size of the Mississippi or something. It's, it's a lot of water. But yeah, I don't know. Other than that, then it's a huge, I mean, the, the satellite imagery of, you can see the fresh water, the imprint of that fresh water coming in, you know, when it's mixing with the sediment, whatever. It just is a huge plume of water into the marine on a you know, constant basis. So over the years, there was the Gulf of Georgia. Back in the 1800s, the whole body of water was Captain Vancouver, referred to the whole thing as the Gulf of Georgia. So the, you got the Strait of Georgia still up there in the Canada side. I still think it's, it's actually a pretty good name, other than the fact that the people in Seattle and probably most of Washington would never go along with it because it sounds too much like the Gulf of Georgia. It sounds too Canadian. In the 1950s, there was a suggestion, a proposal to name the whole thing the Western Sea transborder. And I'm not really sure what the drive for that was. It did not seem to have the same, you know, ecosystem recovery. People have definitely suggested the Greater Puget Sound. Puget Sound, by the way, started out just south of the Tacoma Narrows, so way just a little bit down by Olympia, Tacoma, mm-hmm. and south, and then it got expanded. Bert Weber refers to it as uh, the Puget Creep that it expanded as a term from the southern part of the Puget Sound into what we now up to Admiral. Port Towns and Admiralty Inlet as the whole Puget Sound. But to say that the San Juan Islands, the Gulf Islands, you know, all that is greater Puget Sound, that's not what the Puget Sound is. Um, the Georgia Puget Basin, the Georgia Depression, right at the same time that Bert was putting out his proposal, there was a, a crew that put out a map, uh, David McClowski called the Ish River Sound, Ish River Region. So looking at the Ish Rivers, the Duwamish, the Samish, the Stillaguamish, all these Ish Rivers most of which are more Southern, but there, there are a few up in the Squamish up North. But anyway, they had this idea of naming them. It was Ish River Country and then the Ish River Sound, which didn't catch on, but it was, you know, again, same idea as Burke. And a map, I stumbled across this, this map, I've got a copy of it, the Ish River region map, that is, it's almost an identical same basin boundary, right? Just fascinating. And what year was that? 87 was the first map, and I've met David McCloskey and talked to him, and he's working on a new map, same basic boundary. His new map is something like Ish River region and the Salish Sea. I love it because a complementary. his thing was not so much the marine. He was really looking at the rivers, the Ish River, and in his map, the Salish Sea is just sort of, and there's some marine water there. We're going to call it the sound or whatever, whereas Bert was coming at it from the marine, and yes, there are a bunch of rivers that drain into the Salish sea, so We want those in the map, and so I think the two really dovetail nicely. So he's got a new one coming out that was supposed to be out this last year. I've just looked at the internet recently. I haven't found where it's at with that. So anyway, so there've been a lot of other other names. None of them really, you know, what for whatever reason, you know, timing. I certainly flatter myself to say that they just didn't have a good enough map, right? Um, (laughs) But you know, eventually, Bert second time through with the the help of my map. Now we all live in the Salish Sea, you know, basin. When, When it first showed up on Google Maps, we were very excited.
1: It sounds to me when you talk about, Bert, and um, and also your own thoughts on this, that really an ideal here would be that there would be a future where we are all looking at the whole ecosystem of the Salish Sea whenever we are making decisions as a species about dams, about fisheries, about all sorts of...
2: About washing your car.
1: Yeah, about everything.
2: Watering your lawn or fertilizing your garden, Yes.
1: Yeah. And all sorts of health decisions, et cetera, et cetera, that we would be considering that ecosystem as a whole unit there and how one piece over here impacts another over there. Is that the ideal state you think that we're shooting for?
2: Yes. And definitely that, that, you know, again, that was the the impetus behind Bert's initial work in 1988. And then again, in in 2008 and, uh, and certainly mine as well. And I was one of the the sort of early adopters as well, that I, I had heard the term and was using it, I was sailing out in the San Juans and the Gulf Islands and, and liked the idea of this larger descriptor for all these waters. That, that was the drive. That part of the power of a map of a name is that people then will own it, will claim it as their own, will in subtle and not so subtle ways, that'll change their behavior. Right, and we talk about the Southern orcas that we're starting to think of those as, you know, yeah, those are Salish sea creatures, our water and our species that we're, we're talking about here.
1: Mm -hmm. And this is their home.
2: Yeah. And it's not a a US problem or a Canada problem. It's a Salish sea problem.
1: Well, your map is stunningly beautiful. I love it. I have a copy of it up in my studio and I love that you've made it available for anybody. So where do people get a copy
2: if they want to download it? Maps.stephanfreeland.com, M-A-P-S story and some of the science going there as well that I encourage people to print both sides just so that they've got some of the story as well.
1: Great. All right. Well, thank you very much for your time today.
2: Likewise. Thank you for your work. And I look forward to lots of good podcasts coming up.
0: To learn more about Stefan Freeland and his beautiful Salish Sea map, visit maps.stephanfreeland.com. Sentient Planet is brought to you by co-creators Susan Woodward and Tiffany Owens. Social media by Bridget MacArthur Art direction by Janet Grimwade. Original cover art by Vonda Whitley. Photograph by Mark Stoop. Intro music, The Spaces Between by Scott Buckley. Interstitial music, Odyssey by One Man Symphony. Be sure to visit us at sentientplanetpodcast.com and join our pod. On social media at sentientplanetpodcast. Planet Podcast. If you like what you hear, you can support us by becoming a subscriber at patreon.com sentientplanet. Thanks for listening and love to all beings, great and small.